The closing verses of John chapter 20 would have made a really good ending to the whole book. Here they are. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Not a bad conclusion, right? The risen Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene and then to the disciples minus Thomas and then to the disciples with Thomas. They've all seen him now. All the loose ends are tied up. Sure, there were more signs, but the ones here are the ones you really need to hear, John seems to say. Everything written in this book is there so that you might come to believe and have life. It's neat and tidy, even a little poetic. It feels finished. You heard those final verses from John chapter 20 last Sunday, and you might very well have thought you were hearing the end of the gospel. But you weren't. Because turn the page, and there's one more chapter to go. Sarah just read most of chapter 21 for us. A whole new story after everything seemed finished. Scholars have long debated whether chapter 21 was part of the original gospel of John or whether it was added on a bit later by somebody else. And with such a convincing conclusion coming just before it, you can understand that debate. This scene by the shore of the Sea of Galilee can feel like an afterthought, like something sort of tacked on at the end. It's often referred to as the epilogue. Of course, I have no idea if it was originally part of the gospel or not, but I'm happy to have it there now. I think it's a beautiful and very moving story. And I was struck this week by just how profoundly different it is from its counterpart at the start of the gospel of John, from that famous prologue. You remember how this book starts, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This gospel starts sort of as far off as you can possibly imagine. Almost like a new Genesis, it starts in the beginning, before there was anything at all but God. The opening verses of John center on the Logos, the word, the creative energy present with God from all time, through whom everything came into being. It's this rich and majestic passage. It's dense and philosophical, and it casts the story of Jesus in a very wide, almost cosmic scope. For that reason, it can also feel a little bit distant, a little bit difficult to warm up to. It's hard to imagine going for a walk or having a meal with the Logos. The prologue has this ethereal sort of cosmic dimension, but the epilogue there at the opposite end of the book is as down to earth as can be. Blistered hands and tired bodies, grilled fish, a conversation among friends. I'm struck by that contrast this time around. In the form we have it, this book moves sort of from way up in the heavens right down to earth in all its grittiness, and that feels right to me. It literally ends very close to home. The disciples are, in fact, back in home territory today. They're back in Galilee, the place they're from, the place they know best. When last we saw them, a few verses earlier, they were huddled together in Jerusalem, 
alternately paralyzed by fear and shock over what had just happened in the past week and overjoyed over Jesus' miraculous, miraculous appearances among them after his death. Readers are often surprised to find them back in such familiar surroundings here. The world has changed, after all. A dead man has come back from the dead, and he has breathed the Holy Spirit on his disciples. Everything is new, so shouldn't they be doing something new in response? Shouldn't they be zooming all over the earth, proclaiming the news, jet-powered by God's Spirit? The disciples' return to Galilee can feel like a detour, or a failure, or even a refusal to do what they're supposed to be doing. But I'm not so sure about that. I mean, maybe going back home really was the first thing they needed to do right now. To regroup, to ponder all that they just experienced, to connect with family and friends, very possibly also to earn what they would need to go out and do the work that was ahead of them. Life is like that, actually. After every high point, every experience of great insight or excitement or joy, we eventually find ourselves coming back down the mountain and into the valley where most of life is lived. I remember well coming back to city life after spending a couple of months working in a remote spot in the Rocky Mountains when I was in my early 20s. And just going to the grocery store right away at that time was completely overwhelming at first. It was amazing how quickly I had forgotten that there were 18 varieties of toothpaste to choose from and 42 kinds of breakfast cereal. I missed the simplicity and the clarity of the way I'd been living for those past months, far from the world of commercialism and all those distractions. And it took time to figure out how to be in the city again, how to be back down in the valley. The disciples have come from a pretty major high point here meeting their teacher and friend risen from the dead and receiving the spirit. And as with any mountaintop, they eventually need to come down. Galilee is the valley for the disciples. It's the ordinary, familiar place. So our story today is at least in part about how we live in those ordinary places on this side of Easter. What is the valley like now that Christ is risen? Well, it's still a place where you can fish all night and catch nothing. That's interesting, isn't it? The gospel could have told us that everything was smooth sailing for the disciples after the resurrection, that all obstacles were removed from their way, that the wind was always at their back. And that might have been a tempting story to tell, but it wouldn't have been a true one. Instead, John tells us that in the post-Easter world, the disciples still had nights like this one where the nets came back empty time and time again. The experience of Christians through the ages certainly bears this out. Struggle and disappointment are not over and done with just because Christ is risen. The valley is still that sort of place, but for the disciples, it is now defined by something else. This story is absolutely bursting with grace. After that frustrating night on the water, as the sun is just beginning to bring the landscape into view again. A figure on the shore calls out to those tired and disappointed fishermen, children, you have no fish, have you? 
As an aside, I don't imagine children was a usual way of addressing a bunch of full-grown fishermen out in their boat on the water in first century Galilee. I kind of imagine the disciples might have either had a pretty good idea of who this was or maybe wanted to clock the guy. I don't know. <laughs> but, oh well, they were clearly still sleepy and they're not sure who this is. But he tells them to cast to the right and they do and suddenly the net is full to bursting. This is how things always were with Jesus. More wine at the wedding than any party could need. More food on the table than the crowds could ever eat. More mercy than anyone saw coming. More life than anyone thought was possible. Now it's more fish than the nets could hold, and it's then that the disciples realize who's there with them. He gathers them around and grills fish and bread by the shore and feeds them, giving like he always did, serving like he always did, it's a picture of grace, of gifts they did nothing to earn, a catch beyond their imaginations, a meal offered in kindness, and that's just Jesus being himself. Of course, there's more to come. There by the fire, with no one saying much of anything, Jesus turns to Peter. Pastor John Buchanan notes that what Jesus doesn't say here is just as remarkable as what he does say. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, I'd like us to talk about that night a few weeks ago. The one where you said you would lay down your life for me, and then a few hours later said not once, not twice, but three times that you weren't even my disciple. He doesn't say, where were you when I needed you? He doesn't even say, I'd like a simple apology. He simply turns to Peter and says, Quietly, I imagine. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He gives Peter three opportunities to profess his love and his loyalty, mirroring the three denials earlier. He gives him the chance to restore their relationship gently and mercifully. He gives him acceptance again, a gift of pure grace. Grace is the thread running boldly through this story of life back down in the valley. And what an important reorienting that must have been for the disciples. I mean, this small group of people have found themselves at the center of something very, very big. The reality that in Jesus, death is overcome by life. And without Jesus at their side, I think it would have been very easy to either be paralyzed by the absolute immensity of all of it, or totally burdened and driven, feeling the weight of the world on their own shoulders. Like, we've got to do it all. We have to finish Jesus' work. It is all up to us now. And in this story, Jesus says, no, it is not all up to you. As my followers, you will always live by grace, by God's merciful care and provision. That's an important reorienting for us, too. We are well aware that there is still plenty of struggle and worry and need down here in the valley on this side of Easter. No shortage of challenges in our lives and in our world. We know that's how life is. And it is awfully easy to become either paralyzed by all of that or to become burdened and driven with the grim conviction that it is all up to us that we are in this alone. This story reminds us 
that like those first disciples, we too are always meant to live by grace. We are not alone in facing the challenges around us. We are in the company of the one who filled the disciples' nets to bursting, of the one who loves us, who forgives us, who feeds us, who still shows up in surprising ways. There's work to be done for sure. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Jesus tells Peter. Take care of others. Continue my ways of loving and welcoming and including and serving. There's work to be done, yes, but it is anything but joyless, and it is anything but hopeless. It is work alongside the risen Christ. You might remember that in the other Gospels, Jesus calls his disciples while they are out fishing on the water right at the beginning. That's where everything starts for them. And in the Gospel of John, that calling comes at the very end. It's a sort of new beginning, an invitation to this life of grace all over again. Follow me, Jesus says. And that's an invitation for us too, this day and every day, in the grace and joy of Easter. Thanks be to God. Amen.